at, at Remedy, uh, and it's my, my joy and privilege uh, to get to preach on the Lord's Supper. So uh, that uh, ordinance uh, that is whew, um, very precious. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 6. Uh, we'll be in John chapter 6 uh, today. Um, I, I'm very grateful for the, the prayers of the saints, right? Uh, singing with one, one voice. That was uh, very beautiful today. Um, so, uh, John chapter 6. Uh, we're, we're doing a, a, a small little series on the, the ordinances or sacraments, as you, um, however you like to call it. Uh, I think it's fine to call them both, uh, just as an FYI. Um, but this was supposed to be one sermon, but it's actually turned into two. So I apologize. You'll have to come back next week for part two on the Lord's Supper. Um, but uh, as going through John 6, um, I was just struck and overwhelmed by all these things that uh, Christ proclaims to us um, in the supper and wanted to make sure I had time to get to them all in a sufficient way. So um, a little bit of a recap. Last week we looked at, at baptism, right? Baptism uh, is that ordinance that signifies a believer's entrance into the visible gathering of God's people. Um, it is the ordinance that marks you as a Christian and makes you a visible member of Christ's church. It is the immersion of a believer upon a credible profession of faith by the church for the purpose of communicating the remission of sins and the passing in Christ and with Christ from death to life. And it is the setting apart of, of the believer to live a holy life of love in this sad world in which we live. The Lord's Supper is, is similarly an ordinance of the church. Um, it is as an abstract of principles, which is this uh, founding document of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is, in itself is just a briefing of, that's my word of saying making brief, is a briefing, uh, of uh, the Charleston Confession of 1767. And uh, it says this, the abstract of principles says this about the Lord's Supper. Uh, it says it is an ordinance um, of Jesus Christ. So it's a command that Jesus Christ has given. And it's to be administered with the elements of bread and wine and to be observed by his churches till the end of the world. It is in no sense a sacrifice, but it is designed to commemorate his death to confirm the faith and other graces of Christians and to be a bond pledge and renewal of their communion with him and of their church fellowship. So the ordinance is commanded by Christ holds a special place in Christian worship. It is used by Christ to communicate truths to our souls and to seal us as his and to be a remembrance which has this covenantal meaning. It's, it's God remembering his promises to us and us remembering them as well. And so our text today is John 6, and we'll be reading together John 6, 52 through 59, because it takes 10 minutes to read the whole chapter. So we're just going to read seven verses. Uh, so if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word? Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and let's pray. God, we are... Uh, so grateful that you have made us such amazing promises. And so as we examine your word today, we call upon you to remember them on our behalf. You have said that your word would not return void. And so we pray that your word would not return void today. You said that you would not forsake us and that you would comfort us. And so Lord, comfort us today. You promised that your Holy Spirit would renew us after the image of Jesus. And so, Lord, do that in us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, before we get into the text, uh, I need to sort of like set the table, so to speak. Uh. <laughs> yeah, thank you. appreciate that. Um, <laughs> And so why, why John 6, right? We're talking about the Lord's Supper. Why go to John chapter 6? Uh, there's four reasons uh, we should read John 6 as being about the Lord's Supper. So four reasons that we should. The first uh, is, is kind of um, understanding sort of where Scripture is, is going and understanding how some of the different parts fit together. So if you look at the words of institution, which is uh, what, what we read here at Remedy before we take the Lord's Supper, that's in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 11, 23 through 26, it, it says this, and I'm, I'm going to like try to emphasize with my voice and my hands or my body words for you to, to get in your head. Uh, so uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So took bread, had given thanks, and broke it. So Luke, uh, Luke um, is who we think Paul is following, or maybe Paul is following Luke here uh, in his account of, of the gospel of the Last Supper. So we have the words of institution, which is where the Christians are commanded to take the Lord's Supper. And um, Jesus had a Last Supper with his disciples. We see that in, in Luke 22, 11 through 20. Um, which, which reads this way. It says, And when he, the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup when he had given thanks. 
uh, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after uh, they had eaten, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So I hope I, I did a good job verbally of, of showing you the similarities of those two passages of, of Jesus taking bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and then he distributes it to his disciples. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. These are the exact same verbal similarities that we see in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus feeds the 5,000. So Jesus is up on a mountain, um, as, as John tells us, and there's a, a crowd of 5,000 people, not counting the women and the children. So there's just tons of people. And uh, he goes up to his disciples. He's like, hey, dudes, let's feed all these people. And, and that was a task that was a test for them, as, as John chapter 6 tells us. Uh, and it's a test that uh, they fail because they're like, we can't do that. That's crazy. But, but listen uh, what happens. Uh, Luke 9, uh, starting in verse 13 but he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups, about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves, so taking the bread and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He gave thanks. And he broke the loaves and he gave it to the disciples. So in, in uh, the feeding of the 5,000, you have the same pattern of Jesus taking the bread, blessing it, giving thanks, breaking it, and distributing it to his disciples. They all ate and were satisfied. Verse 17 continues. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So the Bible is linking the Lord's Supper to the Last Supper to the feeding of the 5,000. And since John 6 is, is the, the gospel of John's uh, portraying of the feeding of the 5,000, we should think of this link, we should understand this link in the scriptures, and we should explore the meaning of John 6 as it relates to the supper. So, that, so that's like point one. That's kind of like a, a, uh, a longer um, explanation, but I try to do it uh, briefly for the sake of time here. The second reason is that John 6 is in the context of the Passover. If you look at verse 4, it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand in, in chapter 6, verse 4. The Passover meal is also the context of the Last Supper. You see that in John 13, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. So the feeding of the 5,000 and the Last Supper are at the same period of time. They're around Passover. Also, if you look at the language of John 6, uh, there are thematic elements there that are also the language of the Lord's Supper. Uh, bread is used 21 times in the, uh, Luke, or, sorry, John 6. Sometimes it appears as loaves in English, but 21 times. Flesh is used seven times. The uh, verb to eat is used 14 times. He talks about blood and drinking blood uh, three times. Um, once as like a, a noun, so he uses drink as a noun, but still, he's talking about drinking. And then uh, finally, so that's point three. Uh, point four, and, and this is kind of seals it all, 
is the last and final reason John 6 is about the Lord's Supper. It is. I think it definitively is about the Lord's Supper. Is because Jesus is talking about the thing signified by the Lord's Supper. So when, when in John 6, all the things that he is saying is, and this is a little bit of um, begging the question because I'm, I'm telling you that uh, it is something without necessarily proving that it is, but I'm going to be proving it in a second um, with, with some of the other things. But it is about the Lord's Supper. Uh, John 6 is about the believers feasting upon the body and the blood of our Lord. It is about our, our communion with him, and it is about all the things that he has promised us. Jesus in John 6 is talking about the spiritual banquet that we participate in by faith. And he's saying that it's a necessity. He's saying that we can't do without it. He says that if we don't have it, we don't have life. John 6, 47, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's what Jesus says. And then six verses later in 53, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so, at, so John 6 is about the Lord's Supper. It is. And what does Jesus want us to know that the Lord's Supper signifies? What does he want us to know that it means? And, and I, as I was going through uh, studying, I found 11 things, which is why we're doing a two-part sermon. Um, so we're going to get through five of them this morning, five things. Um, and so uh, let's jump in, starting at, at verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea. So um, we've sort of skipped ahead a little bit. There is the feeding of the 5,000 um, in John 1 through 14. And what happens after that is the crowd is super jazzed that they just got fed, like, miraculously. And so they're, this guy, he should be king, right? Who doesn't want a king who just provides us bread without really even have to try very hard. And so Jesus knows that this is happening. And so he goes and hides on the mountain. Um, and then I, th this is inexplicable to me. I don't understand how this happens. So uh, imagine you have a bunch of buddies. You all hang out a lot. Maybe you're their leader. Um, you just do something really, really cool. You're like, I need to take a break. I'm going to go up to the mountain. And then your, your best buds get into a boat and ditch you. Like that's what happens to Jesus. He, he's up on a mountain alone, uh, probably praying, right, rejuvenating his soul. And his buds uh, hop into a boat and they sail four miles in the Sea of Galilee without him. Like, th to me, that's just inexplicable. I don't understand why um, they sail away. And then rough seas uh, impede their progress. And Jesus comes walking to them on water. He gets in the boat. Um, and the, I think this is funny too. The text says they were glad to take him into the boat. Um, I just think that's funny. Um, that's in 619. Uh, of course they were glad. And then uh, suddenly they're at their destination, right? That's, that's how the, the text reads in, in John 6. And after this, the crowds find him. So that's where we, we come to in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, and he doesn't answer their question. 
right? He's, he, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So you have the, this line of questioning, Jesus, how'd you get here? Jesus sort of like shifts the game. You, were, you uh, are following not because you saw that I am the son of God, but you had your belly full. And then they're asked, well, well, what must you, like, what are the works of God, Jesus? What must we do to be doing the works of God? You know, thinking that, uh, you know, these, these miracles are what they have in view. Jesus answered them in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So uh, we're going to take a little pause here and just explore uh, something together. Um, faith, right? Faith, believing in Jesus as the one sent by the Father is what it means to be a member of Christ. Faith. If you have faith, you are in Christ. You are a new creation. The old has passed away and new things have come to you. Faith, believing in Jesus, is what unites us to him, right? So that's, that's the reality. Uh, that's invisible though, right? That's an invisible thing. Like you can't, uh, you know, look at your faith and be like, like here's the faith. You see this table. It's, it's there. It's, it's invisible. Your union with Christ is invisible as a result of your faith. Your faith is what has caused you to die with Christ in his crucifixion. Your faith is what uh, caused you to be raised up with him in his resurrection. It is your faith that hides your life with Christ in God. Faith is the internal reality, the invisible truth that the church recognizes and confirms in the ordinance of baptism. But your faith, your faith is actually what unites you to Jesus. Your faith is what merges your life with his life. Your faith is what, is what brings you into the spot where you eat his flesh and drink his blood, where you are nourished by Jesus. So we, on behalf of God, in, in baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through all these ordinances, we speak what God speaks. We, see, we say, saved from sin. We proclaim that to the world. We say, condemned no more. We say, alive in Christ. We say, his forever and ever and ever. And so baptism is the sign, right? It conveys meaning and it is meant to assure us of Christ's promise. It is co to confirm to us and to bring us into the visible body of God's elect, the church. Baptism takes the thing that is invisible, your, your, your victory over sin, your, your, your cleansing from all unrighteousness, your union with Christ, your, your being dead and being alive again. It makes those invisible realities, those truths that, that, that save your soul, and it makes it visible. It makes it something that we can see. It makes, us, makes it something that we could say, hey, I was baptized. When, when, you're, when your faith is, is wavering, Right? And you don't know, you, you're, you're, you're burdened with sin or, or, or suffering has entered your life and you, you wonder if God is for you anymore. You look at your baptism and you say, yes, he is. I have been baptized into Christ. He is mine. And, and he has proclaimed that over me. Nothing can take that away from you. 
Baptism takes the thing that is invisible and makes it visible to you. This principle of, of invisible made visible is at play in the Lord's Supper as well. And so it's, it's my desire with these points, right, is to make these invisible truths uh, visible to you. And that, that's what we're doing here. And so uh, at the end, we're going to take the Lord's Supper like we always do because uh, it's so good to, it's so nourishing, right, to remember these things. Um, and, and, and we should apply these things as, as we take the Lord's Supper. So this invisible, visible thing is, is at play in the Lord's Supper. And, and in this meal, Jesus takes invisible realities and assures them to us. He confirms his promises to us. He binds us to himself and to other mem- members of the visible church, right? We come to one table. We take the same bread. We take the same cup. And with the ordinance, there is a sign, um, the baptism and the supper and then the thing signified and that is all that Jesus has done and is doing for us. So continuing in in verse 30 here. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? They work. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, so they think Jesus is a new Moses. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, which is, which is true. That's, uh, Moses even testifies to that as well. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So that's our our first thing that Jesus assures us of in the Lord's Supper. It is that Jesus came down from heaven. Jesus came down from heaven. We see that in 633 there. Jesus is the one who came down from heaven. He, Jesus, was, as the ancient creed says, the Father's only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as we confess with with Chalcedon when we say, Jesus is perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. So 100% man, 100% God. Truly God and truly man. He had a, a reasonable or rational soul and body. He was consubstantial, which means he's of the same stuff, right? The same stuff, same essence uh, with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us, according to the manhood, in all things like us, yet without sin. Jesus was also, as Philippians 2, 6 through 8 testifies, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking up the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the supper confirms to us the incarnation. The supper confirms to us that that the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, died on our behalf. And that, that is who Jesus was. It, it, a, a mere man, right? A mere man couldn't nourish your soul with his flesh and with his blood. A, a mere man couldn't sustain you for all of your life. A mere man couldn't save you from your sins and save the whole world. 
He had to be more. And Jesus was more. And so the supper signifies that Jesus is God. And all that he promises to us in the supper is true because God never lies. That's Titus 1, 2. It signifies that the God-man, Jesus Christ, was no ordinary man. He wasn't just a good guy who got caught up in some wacky political religious mumbo-jumbo, right? And just got swept up in the stuff and got crucified. Instead, he descended because he was on a mission as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And so we're reminded of that in the supper as we come to the elements uh, that, that these represent a man's body and a man's blood, which was broken and shed on our behalf. But it wasn't just any normal man. It was the God-man, Jesus. The second assurance that we see here is that Jesus gives life to the dead world, because dead is not in the, uh, in the text here. We see that in verse 33 as well, right? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus gives life to the world. The testimony of the supper is twofold here. The first is a, it's a positive testimony that Jesus is the one who gives life. Like if you want life, who do you go to? You go to Jesus. We're going to talk about more of that at the end. But the, the second part of the testimony uh, is that if Jesus gives life, then the world needs it. The world needs life. Jesus put it this way in John three eighteen: Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the supper then testifies to us that Jesus gives life and that the world is full of death. That the world is full of death. And this makes complete sense when you think about how food works. Right? You go to food because without it, you're going to die. Right? You will die unless you consume nourishment. You will die unless you're replenishing the life uh, that you need. And the crowd understands this too because they ask Jesus for this bread. Jesus is talking about bread and, and they ask for it. Uh, they say, sir, give us this bread always. They recognize that, that they need this life. Um, but this truth, this truth that the, Jesus gives life and that the world is full of death, is, it, it's not difficult for Christians to mentally assent to, right? Like we, we know that, right? We, we believe that. Um, but it is terribly difficult to live out practically. It, it is. Um, so, like, do you struggle with worldliness? Do you, do, you, do you believe in the promises of sin? Do you, uh, as psalmist, the psalmist in, in Psalm 73 says, in, uh, starting in verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you feel tempted by seeing prosperity in others in the world to reject God's standards of living? Do you, do you feel a, a nudge to move on God's righteous laws and ordinances because you see others enjoying their sins and you suspect that maybe God doesn't really care or maybe God doesn't really mind? The supper 
The supper can be a time where you fortify your desire to do what is right. The supper can help confirm the truth in our hearts that Jesus gives life and that the world is full of death. Because the psalmist, continuing in Psalm 73, in in verse 16, it says this, but when I thought how to understand this, right, the prosperity of the wicked, how do I understand this allure of sin and this prosperity that's happening uh, among, among sinful, wicked people? But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. He couldn't figure it out. Right? As, try as, as hard as he could, he couldn't figure it out until I went to the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. The supper reminds us that the wages of sin is death. It's death. It'll kill you. It'll kill your family. It'll kill your joy. It'll kill your soul. And those who don't want to repent and believe will be destroyed. The supper reminds us of the judgment that is to come and that one day Jesus will appear on the clouds and he will wrap up his bride in his arms and and we'll be with him forever. But then the end will come. The end will come. And those who don't repent and believe will be destroyed. Jesus gives life, but the world is dead already. Verse 34 says, They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe Notice here uh, the difference between the crowd and those who do the work of God from verse 29. God's will workers believe in him uh, whom God has sent. And so my question for you right now is, do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? Have you cast all your hope and all of your cares upon Jesus? Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. That's our third promise, our third assurance that we get from Jesus in the supper. Jesus will never cast us out. The supper promises to us that the King of kings and the Lord of lords will accept sinners that he will not cast us out, that we come to him with our sins, which are many, he will be, as John 1, 1 John 1, 9 says, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, if we confess our sins to him, if we come to him as a source of forgiveness, if we, if we come to him as our supply of life, he will forgive us. He will never cast us out. So what should we know then when we approach the Lord's table is that we ought to take opportunity to confess our sins to our Savior. We we, we lay out our heart to him. Um, We we come to him and we say, Lord, I have failed this week in in this way, this way, this way, and this way, if if you can remember those things. Because uh, 1 John 1, 8 uh, also says, if we say we have no sin... 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So at the table, we should come. We should come uh, not, not hiding our sin, not, not pushing our sin to the, the fringes, not blocking it out of our mind, but we should come offering our sins to Jesus. At the table, we come with full assurance that the table is for sinners. It's, if you think you have no sin, you shouldn't come to the table. It's for sinners. And we should exercise our faith and run to the source of all forgiveness and all cleansing. We should honestly lay our hearts bare before our God and there receive from him cleansing and healing because Jesus will never cast you out. Your, your list, your pile of sins could be higher than your head. It could weigh you down and break your back. It could be more than you could bear. And Jesus will never cast you out. For I have come down from heaven, verse 38, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is, this is sort of a, a similar vein of he will never cast you out, but Jesus will never lose you. That's four. Jesus will never lose you. Jesus will lose nothing. 639. And these two promises are so precious to my soul. And I hope they're precious to yours. Jesus will never cast you out. And Jesus will lose nothing. Those promises are so precious. They're precious because if you, are, if you have ever wondered if you just weren't going to make it, if life was too hard, if, if, if it was too much, or if you felt like your, your life, your soul, didn't amount to anything, it was worthless. If you have ever felt that you've been beyond redemption, if you felt that Jesus did what he did, and he maybe did it for others, but for whatever reason, he couldn't, or, or maybe he just wouldn't do it for you. In your heart, you want Jesus. You read about him, and you hear about him, and you love him, but you think maybe he doesn't want you. Or maybe he does, but you're just going to mess it all up again. And Jesus will leave you. He'll abandon you. Jesus shouts in the supper that those are lies. In the supper, he looks out at you and he says, I will never cast you out. I will never lose you. I will fight for you. I will protect you. I will keep you safe. He says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So that rest that Jesus is talking about there in Matthew uh, eleven twenty eight is actually our, our next point. The next blessing of, of Jesus is that Jesus will grant us eternal life. Verse 40. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's, our, that's actually our, final, uh, our, our fifth and final one, that Jesus will grant us eternal life. The supper represents to us and confirms to us the fact that, he, that we will have life forever with God. It is designed to draw our attention from the world we live in to the place where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father, and the life that we will have with him. Jesus promises us eternal life in the supper, and he grants it to us. John 17, 3 says this about eternal life. It says, this is eternal life, that we know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We're going to um, come into a time of the Lord's Supper here. Uh, but before we do, everybody turn to Revelation chapter 21. I want to read, read a little bit from that here. Revelation 21. This is an image, a picture of what it is going to be like um, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give uh, from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Let's pray. Lord, we are full of gratitude. We are full of uh, thankfulness that you uh, you promise us so much and that you give us so much. And Lord, we ask that uh, as, we, as we see the Lord's table today, that you would do much work in our hearts, that this, this habit of, of taking the supper this, 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 uh, would form us in ways that we wouldn't have been formed without your ordinance, without your command. May we remember all of these things that you have done and given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, 